The religious always persecute the true believers. That's that way throughout history. It's that way today. The religious always persecute the true believers. And this is seen here in these first two verses that we just read. Paul obtains letters from the high priest for the synagogues in Damascus. He wants to go over there to persecute the Christians in that city. Damascus was a large commercial center in the Roman province of Syria. It had a large Jewish population. There were multiple synagogues there. Paul wanted the letters so he can bind the men and women who were of the way. This term, the way, is used six times to describe believers in Jesus. You know how many times the term Christian is used in the New Testament to define believers? Only three times. So you have twice as many times, six times were referred to as the way, those of the way, only three times as Christians. And yet no one describes themselves today as, I'm part of the way. (laughs) Christians has held true over the years. Verse 3 says, As he journeyed, Saul is journeying to persecute the church. He despises their teachings. He despises the doctrines. He views the Christians as these renegades who are messing up Judaism. And he doesn't like it. He wants to end it. He wants to nip it in the bud, like Barney would say. Don't let it go any bigger than it's become already. And it says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. This was a blinding light, brighter than the sun, according to Acts 26.13. It left Saul blind. He fell to the ground and heard a voice. It says in verse 4, And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul responds with reverence and uses the term Lord and says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So here it is, Jesus, the very one he's persecuting. He views as a fraud and a phony who's taken these good... Jewish folk and gotten him involved in this dopey way thing. (laughs) He wants to crush it. He wants to kill it. And this very Jesus who he's against shows up on this road to Damascus. A blinding light takes place. He's on the ground. And Jesus says to him here, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were part of farming equipment that helped farmers to guide their oxen. Here the Lord is using it proverbially for unavailing resistance to superior power. In other words, you're wasting your time if you're trying to persecute me, if you're trying to end my kingdom, if you're trying to destroy my people. It will not work. His church will go on. It will smash the gates of hell. And regardless of all that's happened down through the last 2,000 years, his church has continued. Even in China, 
where they've had decades upon decades to destroy it, it goes on, even to this day. It cannot be crushed. Verse 6 says, So he, Saul, trembling and astonished. Now here's a magistrate trembling. Remember we made clear that the religious authorities possess civil authority. We've made that historically clear in previous sermons. And here Paul is, Saul, getting these letters from the high priest. He possesses civil authority. He possesses civil authority to arrest people and take them bound to Jerusalem. And now here's this magistrate trembling before Christ, as all magistrates should. Psalm 2 is clear on that. He's trembling, he's astonished, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? So the guy goes all the way from, I'm going to destroy these people, get rid of this Jesus guy, their doctrines are done, we're going to disperse their gatherings, we're going to nip it in the bud and be done with this nonsense before it gets any stronger than it already has, to sitting on a dusty road, trembling on the ground, saying to the very one he was attacking and persecuting, what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah. And that's how it is when you come to know Christ, isn't it? It's immediate. It's, it's a massive change. And you're left, what do you want me to do? You want to do what he wants you to do. You want to know what it is he wants you to do. You now, it's just that quick. You now know you live for him. You're his. Saul's experiencing all that, laying there in that dusty road, laying there in the midst of that dust. And it goes on and it, and it says, Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is repentance. He didn't eat or drink for three days. He knew he had met Christ. And he wanted to know what he was to do with his life. He was still in a state of humbleness and a desire to serve him. He was... He. He wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking till he knew what the Lord wanted him to do. He was drawing close to him. It says in verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Remember the first Ananias we met in the book of Acts in chapter 5? Kind of, kind of like nobody wants to name their kid Ananias after that guy did what he did, right? So this is kind of redeems the name Ananias with this disciple because you could name your kid Ananias after this Ananias rather than that other Ananias, right? So Ananias is, you know, there and the Lord calls out to him and he says, here I am, Lord. This is important to note, you know. You understand God loves us all and he all uses us in different ways. Right? Amen? And a great example that I like to use is like everybody knows who Boniface was. You know, chopped down the Oak of Thor. Thousands won 
amongst the Germanic peoples to Christ. But like almost nobody knows the guy who mentored him in the faith, who discipled him in the faith. He was a guy named Willebrord. Like Willebrord. Like nobody's heard of Willebrord. But if Willebrord hadn't been faithful to the Lord, there would have been no Boniface. Do you understand what I'm saying? God has different things for different people. And he uses us in different capacities and at different realms and spheres and all that kind of stuff. So here's Ananias. He's a faithful follower of Christ. And he's used in this process of Saul becoming this chosen vessel of the Lord to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Amen? Never despise what the Lord has for you. Always walk close to Him. He has a purpose for every one of our lives. Even American Christianity, for you women sitting here, they get caught up in their ministries, you know, their big female ministries. And they can actually make you feel like you're less because you have children and you take care of your home. That is the high calling of Christ in your life. To raise your, your duty in the sight of Christ is indispensable in that regard. But this whole world makes you want to think, no, you got to be like Barbara Walters, okay? No, you don't have to be like Barbara Walters. And all these Christian women try to do the Christian version of Barbara Walters, you know, and it's disturbing. It's weird. There's nothing more wonderful than seeing a woman who wants to serve Christ and what he has given her to do in regards to familial duties. So never despise what God has for you. Never look down about, well, I don't reach the masses. I don't get to speak to thousands. Who cares? And by the way, if that's what you want, God will take that all away from you first (laughs) Um, before he gives that to you because you won't care about that. He will humble you. He will debase you. He will mold you. So that doesn't mean anything. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then he uses you in that, in that way. Um, so here's Ananias, faithful follower of Christ. You know, Ananias didn't... Look what he says. Verse 11, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying... And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And look how Ananias responds to this. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. (laughs) It's like, okay, I think I'm hearing from the Lord. Did you just say to go meet with this guy? (laughs) So he wants to be sure, right? Like he doesn't want to... Is this a trap? You know, that type of thing. So he wants to meet him. It's a really like the street straight there in Damascus. It's still there today. Did you know that? 2,000 years later, it runs east and west. It was as popular then as like Michigan Avenue is to Chicago today, you know. And um, so like, is this really you, Lord? I mean, it's a popular street. You know, <laughs> the street straight, you know, and that type of thing. He's questioning. He wants to be sure. And here he, and here he has authority. 
Ananias goes on to say, from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias wants to be sure. But the Lord responds to him and says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Notice Ananias didn't get all like weird, right? Well, I mean, I've been here for how long faithfully serving you? You feel confident enough to give me the message to take to this guy? Why don't you just use me for all this, these purposes, right? Why, why do you need this guy over here? None of that type of thinking. You know why? Because as you grow in the faith and understand the Lord, that kind of thinking doesn't even come in your mind. I'm serious. It doesn't even come in your mind. When we're young, you know, we want to use our strength for Christ and those types of things. Those types of thoughts can be common in our minds. You know, I want to be used more than someone else. I want to be seen more than someone else. I remember when I was a young Christian, I wanted to be bigger than Billy Graham by the time I was 35. And by the time I was 30, God had knocked the snot out of me so much, I didn't even care about Billy Graham anymore. I didn't even care for his form of Christianity anymore. (laughs) So it's like all that kind of stuff. God transforms us. He clothes us in humility. He helps us understand to see what's really important in life and in his kingdom. And it isn't what 21st century Christianity has created with their guilds. I call them the speaking guilds. If you say the right things, use the right lingo, you can get on their speaking guilds. You know what I mean? And travel all over and speak to tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and blah, blah, blah. And do what? Make twofold children of hell. Because that's what most of them do. Every man comes to a place in his life, every woman comes to a place in their life where they realize I can either ingratiate myself and go with the flow of modern Christianity or I can be true and faithful to Jesus. And sadly, many go with the flow. And and I can see a man when he doesn't. And it's so good to see. There's a marked difference in his behavior and his life when he doesn't do that, and instead he puts Christ first. Regardless of how much he's known or praised by the lips of men. Now, here I want you to notice something here, because in verses 15 and 16, notice what it says. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Remember we've talked about the importance of of the name? Huge. So if you weren't here for those sermons, listen uh, to our prior sermons on that. To bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So in these two little verses, we see Saul is a chosen vessel. And look who he's to reach with Christ in Christianity. Number one, the Gentiles, right? Again, this unfolding theme in Acts that this gospel is for more than just the Jews. Remember, we've been seeing snippets of it in almost every chapter so far. Luke gives these little snippets, seeing that we're headed for a crescendo, that this gospel isn't just for the Jews or just for the children, it's for all peoples. 
And here we see another snippet again here in the fact that Saul is this chosen vessel and the first group he is going to reach is the Gentiles. In fact, when we get to chapters 10 and 11, the very next chapters, we have two full chapters of the finally where Luke pulls the historical curtain back and shows this gospel is for all peoples of the earth, not just the Jews. So this is all setting the stage for that because here's the chosen vessel that's going to bring this gospel to the Gentiles. Understand? This is, this is big stuff going on here. We've already seen how the gospel in chapter 8, 7 and 8, was brought to the um, Samaritans and how that was, whoo, so that, was, that was tough on the Jewish believers. To, oh, they're in this thing too? And now it's going to be like, everybody? The Gentiles? (laughs) And there would even be conflict about that. Remember in the first chapter of Galatians, the conflict that Paul wrote about there, how even Peter and him ended up in conflict? Because Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. Remember that? So this is like a huge, huge deal here. Notice the second group that the Lord says... Saul will reach or have mission to. It says kings. In other words, he's going to have influence with the magistrates. He's going to have time with them, encountering them. And this is the history of Christianity. It impacts nations. It confronts the magistrates. Because Christ himself is a king. And he has his own rule. Understand? He has his own rule. And so we, down through the history of Christianity, find ourselves in conflict with the magistrates. We find ourselves with mission to the magistrates. And when we look at church history, we see that the early missionaries always went to the magistrates. Always. The apologists always went to the magistrates. This is because they saw the early churchmen... Paul and the other apostles, they saw that they had ministry to the magistrates. They saw that Christianity impacts nations, impacts the governments of men. It isn't like this little whore thing that we have in 21st century America where it sits over in the hovel of the corner and says, we're just over here while the whole rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket. No, true Christianity says if the governments of men are going to impugn the law and word of God, we are his ambassadors and we will speak out. And we will disciple the nations. We will show men what's true and what's right. That's what Christianity did for 1,800 years. And because it's shrunk back and just wants to live in its cloister for the last 200 years, we're reaping the whirlwind of the consequences of abandoning mission to the magistrates. Christianity is to be instructive to the magistrates, explaining their duty to them in the sight of Christ. And notice which group is mentioned third. It's the children of Israel. And as we will see, he eventually focused on the Gentiles fully with much interaction with the magistrates, but he focused on the Gentiles rather than the children of Israel because they were hardening their hearts. This will all come out in the book of Acts. 
And notice what this chosen vessel gets. Okay? Like, here's the thinking of some people. I'm his chosen vessel. Have you ever met ministers like this? I have. Have you ever met Christians like this? I'm one of, I'm God's chosen vessel. He chose me. You know, I dispense miracles. I give great sermons. All that kind of stuff. Look what the chosen vessel gets. He doesn't get all that stuff. He gets to suffer. <laughs> so God's chosen him, has these three groups he's going to have him, which basically encompasses the earth. <laughs> you know, three groups that he's going to reach, have mission to. And it says in verse 16, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's what it says. He gets to suffer. But he doesn't just suffer for suffering's sake. He gets to suffer for his name's sake. For Christ's name's sake. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Suffering for his name's sake is part of the Christian life. We have to think what's best for the kingdom, what's best for his name, and be willing to suffer when we're treated wrong. When you look what Saul was called to, you see the bankruptcy of American Christianity. You readily see that it is a hybrid, that it's pretend. These little two verses here, verse 15 and 16, stand in utter contrast to American Christianity and how it operates, how it thinks. It reveals that it is a hybrid, the form of Christianity we find ourselves in. It is pretend. Reaching the Gentiles, the peoples of the world, is a slogan. It is a lip service among Christians today. They love to talk about that, but very little action to actually see it accomplished. And we all have to look at ourselves in the mirror when I say that, don't we? There is no mission to the magistrates. And suffering? Please. Most Christians today would be like the Jews of old who would interpret any suffering as a sign that you had done wrong by God. That's how much we have a pain-free Christianity created in America. Verse 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother, Saul, he's been converted. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes, Saul's eyes, something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Very important to be discipled in the faith, to be grounded in good doctrine and good behavior. And that's what was happening with Saul at this time. He's spending time with the disciples learning good doctrine, learning good Christian behavior. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. That he is the Son of God. When Christ changes a man, he wants to tell others about Jesus. 
I had the good fortune of becoming a Christian in Teen Challenge. And right after I came to know Christ, I wanted to tell others about him. But I also was fearful, like a scaredy cat, you know, to talk to others about him. And what was good about Teen Challenge is they would make you go do it. <laughs> you know, I was put there by the courts. I couldn't leave. Well, I could, but I'd be in trouble. And um, so it was like, right away, new Christian out there, passing out tracts, defending the faith, sharing the gospel. And I remember the first time we went out, we were standing in this park, and there's people all around. We all got together and held hands. We're all men. This feels crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I was so self-conscious. We're praying out here. And then we had to go out and talk to people, and they teamed you up with an older brother. That's good. It's good to get out on the streets. Most people never going to get out to the streets. You do understand that. Most never share their faith. The last Pew poll that was done found that 90% of Christians have never shared their faith with anyone in any setting, let alone out on the streets, like we see with the apostles and disciples from the book of Acts. Okay? How many times have we been out on the streets ministering either preaching the gospel, just straight preaching the gospel, or out speaking up for the preborn, and and some Christian will pull over and be all excited. Oh, my word, Christians. Wow. And I heard this story I don't know how many times. Hey, have you ever heard of Ray Comfort? Yeah, of course. Well, we showed all his evangelistic videos, all the training at our church. And after it was over, I couldn't find one person willing to go out and declare the truth of God's word. And they're just so excited to see Christians out on the streets. That's happened again and again and again across the country as we've traveled. Most people don't want to do that. Paul, Saul, immediately, it says, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And this is why we refer to Saul's conversion as a conversion. This one who once persecuted the people of God and attacked the doctrines of the church now is in fellowship with the people of God and teaches the doctrines of the church. That's a conversion. Everything. And we see such conversions down through the history of Christianity, where those who persecuted the church become some of the most faithful witnesses of Christ in the earth. Radically transformed, no longer persecuting the church, they're part of it. It's tremendous. The latest person I know of who was like attacking the church, attacking Christianity, everything it stood for, and made a radical transformation, and I mentioned this during the OSA thing, I think, is Pastor Callie. How many of you saw the guy who looked like a lizard? You know, with all his metal in his face and all his tattooing and everything during the OSA thing, right? So... Yeah, he's been a Christian for 20 years now. He converted at age 38. I think he's the same age as me, 58, if I remember right. When Clara saw him down in Texas, when we were down there speaking at a conference together, he walked up to our table and Clara just got this smile on her face. And she said, I bet you had a really radical past, brother. (laughs) And he got a big smile on his face and he was like, 
I certainly did. <laughs> shared what he did. I shared a story about how while we were there, this homeschooling thing was going on. They were pulling out as we were coming in for our abolitionist meeting. And this elderly woman, I got into a discussion with her, and then her husband was there, and we're talking, and they're like loving what I have to say. And all of a sudden, Pastor Callie walks up with his lizard face and talks to me like he knows me forever, you know. And I could see out of the corner of my eye, they're like, what the... <laughs> this guy knows this guy. Who are these people? You know? And so Pastor Kelly walks off, and I knew I had to say something, so I said, I just want you to know he's a brother in Christ, and he shared his testimony last night how he actually used to stand outside the abortion clinics to make sure babies could be murdered. He would actually raise money to help people murder their babies. He was a persecutor of the Christian faith. He was a God-hater, at war with Christ, and Christ radically transformed him. Amen. Amen? And that elderly woman put her hand out and touched my arm, and she said, I'm so glad you said that. I needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I'm sure you did. <laughs> you know, because like the first time I saw him, I was like, wow. And I didn't know if it was on our side or the other side. We're standing out there in Oklahoma you know, outside abortion clinic. And um, and then I've gotten to know him. I actually wrote a thing for his book that just came out. And I'll tell you, the first several times I talked to him, I just had a hard time looking at him, you know, because of what he looked like. But as I got to know him as a brother, even with a face like that, Christ shines through. He loves him so much. He lives for him. And Christ just shines through that brother. And you know, there's people, people say, well, why doesn't he get it all done? Well, it costs $100,000 to undo everything he did. A, he's as poor as a church mouse. (laughs) You know, so, you know, they live in some motorhome type deal or something down in Texas. And, but as he puts it, even if I had $100,000, I certainly wouldn't put it into fixing my face up. I would put it into kingdom efforts. Amen. And so, um, yeah, he has that. And he is able, think about this. There's people who will talk to him because he's like that. People who don't know Jesus because he's like that. Who will have far greater ears to hear, a willingness to listen to him because he looks like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's true. You know, like I come out of all the gangs and everything like that. When I just simply mention that, even at my age as this little Pillsbury doughboy looking guy, you know, people are like, oh, who are in gangs? Listen more just because they know what I was, you know. It's true. And so God's using him to reach people in that way. And he's a great brother in the faith. And you can find all the way back from the earliest of Christianity like this with Saul, all the way up to the current day where you see enemies of Christ who convert. I decided just to Google it, right? And this story came up from just two months ago, three months ago now, about this Sheikh Hassan Podo. 
who was a radical imam, they actually destroyed a church, him and his people, in Uganda. And he's been one to Christ. And he's now preaching Jesus everywhere he goes. And just as we'll see that Saul had to run for his life, so to speak, flee for his life here in Damascus as we continue in our passage here, this guy's had to do the same thing. He's all, When his family found out about it, when he came back to the house, they had a welcoming committee for him and they beat him bloody. His wife and children had to flee and find refuge in a Christian home in another geographical area. And it says, um, his father has hired Muslims to hunt his son, to hunt him, to find him. And he's disowned and disinherited him. Here's a guy who was once a persecutor of the church, now serving Jesus. It's amazing. (laughs) You know, it's like amazing. And this is what's happened to Saul here. It says in verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name? Man, I, got, I almost want to do another sermon on the name <laughs> you know, in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus the very people who he was going to join an allegiance with and align with to rub out the way, right? Now look what it is. He's in conflict with. He's trying to win them to Jesus. Again, this goes back to what? The iconoclastic nature of the gospel, that it destroys idols, that it topples them, smashes them. Saul's been radically transformed. Verse 23 through 25, it says, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They want to kill Saul. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a basket. One scholar I read called Saul's escape here ingenious, yet ignominious, ingenious, you know, wow, you got this basket, went down the wall at night, ingenious, right? Yet, ignominious. So, do you know what ignominious means? When I read this, as I was reading the scholar, I thought, is he crazy? He's calling this ignominious? Ignominious means marked with or characterized by disgrace or shame, dishonorable, deserving of shame or infamy, despicable, humiliating, degrading. He views what Saul did here by fleeing the civil authorities as ignominious. But Paul didn't think so. He didn't view it that way at all. In fact, while hammering out the suffering, remember that's what he got for being the chosen vessel, suffering. While hammering out the suffering he had endured, he speaks of this very situation. 
Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's writing about the suffering he's endured, and he includes this as an example of the suffering. He speaks of this very incident where he's let down on the side of the wall in a basket. And he did not view it as ignominious. Let's start in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 18, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. I also will boast. Remember, he's writing to these Corinthians who are so dumb, they're being taken advantage of by charlatans. You know, like 95% of American Christianity um, is being taken advantage by phonies. And so he's writing to them, and he says, Seeing that many boast, according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. He's, he's being sarcastic. Okay, <laughs> he's being sarcastic. Paul could be very cutting in his remarks. They weren't wise, they were dopes. Okay? Because they're listening to these phony people. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. That's like American Christianity, right? Paul had to deal with it 2,000 years ago. It's just human nature. Read church history. It's been the blight of good churchmen down through the ages. All the phonies that are around generation after generation after generation. They always seem to be in the majority. So he's taking them to task. And he says in verse 21, To our shame I say that we were too weak for that. He's still being sarcastic. We're too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am also bold. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and anger. This is what a chosen vessel of God gets. This is true Christianity. Understand? It stands total antithesis to American or Western Christianity of our day. He goes on and he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? All right, he's bothered that these phony people are taking advantage of these brothers and sisters at Corinth. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And then he brings up the story. In closing this out, he says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. About all the things he just said, I'm not lying. 
In Damascus, the governor under Artus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Paul did not view what he did as ignominious, like this scholar. The fact that this scholar calls it ignominious is just another revelation of how messed up American Christianity is. the bankruptcy of American Christianity, that it's a hybrid, that it's pretend. One which cannot countenance suffering and actually thinks that you are a bad Christian if you suffer at the hands of the civil authorities, like Paul was here. American Christianity can hardly handle being inconvenienced, let alone suffering. And of course this passage makes clear that we are not to always obey the magistrates and submit to them. Paul says right here he knew that they wanted to arrest him. Did he knock on the police door and the governor's door and say, oh, by the way, here I am. Romans 13 demands that I submit to you. No. He did not, did he? He fled. And that's why true Christianity has always taught that fleeing persecution has always been a legitimate response to persecution. Just as we already saw in the earlier chapters how the Christians fled from Jerusalem, God used it to spread his kingdom further to the Samaritans. Had they not been persecuted, they would have still been sitting in Jerusalem sipping their lattes. You know, working on getting those tinted windshields on their Lexus chariots, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Persecution was used by God for good, to move his people to another geographical area, to spread his kingdom further. So this passage makes clear that we are not to always obey the magistrates and submit to them, which is probably why this scholar finds it ignominious to begin with what Saul did. Precisely because, like most current churchmen, he believes we should always obey the government. And the scriptures teach nothing of the kind. True Christianity has never taught anything of the kind. And again, it points to the fact that American Christianity is a hybrid. It's pretend. It's not true Christianity. Understand that. You won't get on the speaker's guilt if you want to be faithful to Christ. You have to whore yourself out to get on the Speaker's Guild. And if you start trying to think that you can bring them along and win them, and then you start saying the stuff you really, because I know men who tried this, guess what? They get rid of you. <laughs> so they have no interest in true Christianity. Any Christian, They like Christianity to be theory. Okay, that gets you on the Speaker's Guild. Or, you know, all inward, right? You know, it's like a self-help program. It's all narcissistic. You actually believe... Christianity should smash the gates of hell? You actually believe Christianity should be in the marketplace as we see the early church? What did did Luke record here? The church in the marketplace, overwhelmingly, not back at the church building, being narcissistic, questioning their motives and why am I doing it, and all that kind of stuff. Grow up. You're doing it because he changed your life, amen? And we're living for him. 
It's pretty simple. <laughs> Yet American Christianity wants you to be all concerned. Well, why are you doing this, brother? You know? Um, because they're murdering people? <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> I think it's crazy. I've actually had people say that in the recently. You know, oh, you just want to talk about abortion. You just want to talk about homosex and things like that because of the fact that you don't want to look at yourself. No, I actually am involved because they're murdering people. I actually speak out because of the fact that I don't believe the governments of men should impugn the law and word of God and we should be quiet while they do it. And finally, this passage here, verses 23 through 25, shows us that the state and religion join together. They join hands to persecute the true Christians. And that is throughout church history also. You see it over and over again, where the state and whatever religion is in the country, they join hands to smash Christianity. It's going on in nations all over the world right now. And it's always been that way. There's even been times where bogus forms of Christianity have joined the state to smash the true believers. Ever hear of the Reformation? So it's important for you to understand these things. And here it is happening to Saul. Here, the governor with the Jews. That's what it says. That's what Paul says here. Work together in order to get him. Here he talks about the civil authorities. Back here in Acts, he talks about the Jews. They work together to try to get him. And verse 26 says, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, by the way, you know how long this was after he was saved? Three years. How do we know that? Book of Galatians, chapter 1. Paul says there, he didn't go to Jerusalem until three years. He never conferred with them didn't confer with flesh and blood. Christ taught me this stuff. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. You might be thinking, it's been three years. Why would they be afraid of him? Well, maybe because they didn't have cell phones, you know. (laughs) Twitter didn't exist yet. News traveled slowly. Stories changed as the news traveled, (laughs) you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's three years later, they're still thinking the information they got still is this guy's bad news. He left Jerusalem and went over there to persecute Christians in Damascus. It's like the last they knew of him. It says, so they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't believe it. And it's good to have a little healthy suspicion. (laughs) You know, it's like... Some people are overly suspicious, right? You ever meet Christians who are overly suspicious? And you're just like, okay. And then there's other Christians who like, they have no suspicions whatsoever. <laughs> you know, and, it, and they get played over and over again because they have no suspicions. <laughs> they have no discernment, you know. So this is good. You know, they're wondering, is it true or not? And look, it says Barnabas. Barnabas again brought in a good light here. Remember we talked about his name meaning magnanimous? And what an awesome word that is. And what an awesome attribute that is or characteristic it is. 
So it figures it would be Barnabas. He's the real Gregorius type of guy, right? You know, like, oh, man, he's, he's with us. He's cool. So Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out, and we know he wasn't there that long. He was only there for like 15 days. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. We know that again from Galatians. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. So they want to kill him again. Now remember who got killed the first time? Stephen, who was amongst the Hellenists who had converted to Christ. And that's when the big persecution broke out and everybody left, except the apostles and a few other folk stayed in Jerusalem. The rest were spread abroad because of the persecution we saw here in the book of Acts, right? So they're thinking to themselves, you know what? I faintly remember the last guy we had here who boldly took the Hellenists to task and, you know, or the, Jew, the Jews to task, and these are Jews themselves, you know, those following Judaism to task. That didn't go real good. <laughs> so they're like, let's get rid of this guy. You know, let's. So look what happens. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea. Remember, that's in Samaria. And sent him out to Tarsus. And then verse 31 says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of of the Lord. That is so key, and we've talked about that already. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Amen. So they had Saul, who would become Paul, go off into Samaria and then on to Tarsus. And, um, and so then the church was able to have peace so it could continue to grow in the faith um, throughout the regions. But that would be short-lived, as we'll see. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you for this time to look at the conversion of Saul. God, I just ask and pray that each one here will have tasted that conversion, O God, where you radically, by the power of your Holy Spirit, regenerate us, transform us, make us literally new creatures in Christ. Lord, I pray if there's any amongst us who have not tasted that conversion, that you would work upon them by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would humble themselves, that they would taste your holiness and your love, your goodness, O oh God, and be transformed by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just ask and pray that we would be faithful to you this coming week, that wherever we are, that we would tell others of you, that we would... Leave literature behind. Lord, that we, Lord, that you would arrest our hearts regarding certain individuals that we see that we know we have to talk to them. And may we be faithful to do so. May we not be so busy with all our Martha activity that we don't do that, oh God. May we do it. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you continue to build your kingdom in each one of our lives 
that we would grow in the faith and that we would be faithful to you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.